are they pushing or pulling the protagonist in some way? So your side characters, like I said, they need to be having an impact on the protagonist and thereby the story. If they are not pushing the protagonist to either do something or pushing them away from something or pushing them to think um, and they are not also pulling them through on the journey or pulling them away from the villain or pulling them away from making a mistake um, you know on and on and on then what are they doing and what impact are they having if they're not doing one of those things they can probably go hello and welcome to the writer's mindset podcast with me christina adams and me ellie betts each week, we're here bringing you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing goals. This week, we're talking to best-selling author, rebel podcaster, and professional speaker, Sasha Black, about writing side characters. interviewee this week, Sasha Black, writes amazing educational non-fiction books for writers and fantasy for young adult and adult audiences. She is also a best-selling author, host of Rebel Author Podcast and Next Level Authors, and a professional speaker. She lives in Cambridgeshire with her wife and son. I sat down with her to talk writing side characters, the topic of her latest book, productivity, and how the bloody hell she juggles writing, podcasting, the Alliance of Independent Authors, and all the other things she does with having a young child. And while staying mostly sane. She's honestly such a badass. <laughs> she is, and we had a really interesting discussion that's in the interview about morning writing routines, and it's something I'd heard before and kind of dismissed, but last week I was like, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. And last Sunday I sat down to write... Literally, I did nothing beforehand except feed the dog. I fed Millie, and then I came upstairs, and then I started writing. And I wrote 2,200 words. Damn. And I carried on doing that. I did it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And then Thursday, I didn't do it because I met a friend for breakfast and didn't have time. And I was like, oh, it's fine. I'll just do the writing sprint when I get home. And all I managed to write that day was about 380 words. Mm, I think you found the new perfect writing routine. I think I might have done because then on Friday and Saturday and today, because we're recording this on a Sunday, I managed to repeat that and I've averaged about 2,200 words a morning. That's and so amazing. I, thank you. I now have 1,800, 18,000 18, words on The Necromancer's Secret, which is book three in Afterlife Calls. And I've literally just sent book two to the beta readers. So if I can get a real head start on that book and maintain the momentum it's going to make a massive difference to how fast i can publish absolutely this sounds like a fantastic new routine you've got going we shall see i definitely feel a bit lost not having the mummy's curse to edit i've been like in editing mode since about february so it is a bit bizarre to not have a book to edit at the moment but my plan is to probably draft books three and four in afterlife calls and then go on to hollywood heartbreak probably we'll see how that we'll goes. see <laughs> before we dive before we dive into the interview shout out to your awesome patrons for all your support yes patrons get early access to our episodes bonus content and our undying gratitude for supporting all the work that goes into creating these episodes for you and you can become a podcast patron for as little as £1. That's about $1.50 for our American listeners a month. Oh, that is nothing. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. 
So how's your writing been going this week then, Ellie? It's been busy, I guess you would say. Um, so I've now finished the script I was working on and has been handed in as my uni assignment. Yay! Um, I, it was difficult to get through, but I got there. Um, and, and, you know, it was still beneficial, even if I ended up hating the project. But, you know, these things happen. They I got do. to the you end. can't love everything. Still... No, exactly. So I'm, ha- I'm happy it's done <laughs> for multiple reasons. Uh, so I've been working on my dissertation again, which has felt kind of refreshing. I think I got a bit bored with that, which sounds terrible. I don't hate all the projects I do, I swear. <laughs> but now that the script is done, the dissertation is the last big creative piece I need to do. Well, the last creative piece I need to do for my master's degree. And then it'll be on to the uh, much-talked-about Alex Warrington series that I know we've discussed on multiple episodes. I definitely wouldn't be able to name them. Um, so I think I've... it was season one. I think it was season one episodes. I don't think we mentioned it season two. Haven't we? Well, well, for anyone that's listening, <laughs> I'm planning at the moment a series called, well, about a character called Alex Warrington, who is accidentally ends up coming into her witch powers. And hilarity ensues with sarcasm and wine and swearing. Um, that's uh, it's urban fantasy. That's probably something I should mention before the swearing and the wine. It's urban fantasy. <laughs> so. I think people got that from the sarcasm, the wine, <laughs> the swearing, and the witch part. I don't know. Well, that sounds pretty not urban fantasy. A children's book. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. From some of the things you've said about it. <laughs> so yes i i've enjoyed the dissertation again it feels fresh again after taking the break but also the, it started niggling alex is niggling in the back of my head again um which is nice because she's been asleep for a little while <laughs> what about you what have you been up to i think i know there's a few exciting things yeah so we're recording this at the start of july and ghost call came out the tuesday just gone and that was all very exciting. We've had lots of lovely feedback so far. And somehow I've already managed to send the second book to beta readers. Because I did write the first drafts of uh, The Ghost Call and the Mummy's Curse back to back last December. So obviously I edited them back to back. And then, as I mentioned when we were talking about the Satter interview, I've been writing um, the book three, The Necromancer's Secret. And I've already got about 18k on that. And my first drafts for Afterlife Cause books tend to be very short. They tend to be 25 to 30,000. And then a lot of like subplots and world building and stuff come in and then add about another 30,000, which tells you how much dialogue's in my first drafts. <laughs> so it is weird. Although I do feel like the more I get into the swing of writing these books, the more the world building comes in naturally. And I'm almost taking a bit of a Loki approach where the world building is coming out through the dialogue. Because okay. I really like that Loki has been doing that. I won't say any more than that so I don't spoil the series. Although I know by the time most people listen to this, it will have finished by then. But if you want lessons in world building, definitely give Loki a watch. Because there's so much for them to explain in the first couple of episodes. But it doesn't slow down the pace, ever. It's that really cleverly good. done. Mm. And i just ordered the cover for the mummy's curse as well so it's already on pre-order without a cover very exciting <laughs> yeah so we should have a cover by this time next week maybe <gasps> and definitely by the time this episode goes out so i yes. suppose our lovely writers should keep an eye out well yes. in the past we're talking to the future writers go look on facebook for the, uh, yeah. <laughs> for the cover yeah. reveal <laughs> 
I'm getting yeah, my much. times mixed up. I feel like I'm I know. Time traveling. It's a mind fuck <laughs> recording this a month before it goes out, isn't it? <laughs> look on Facebook, but like look at previous posts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be just, everywhere, don't worry. Not as exciting as keep an eye out on social media. <laughs> yeah, that's it's true. Go back and, and look at the, the previous post if, if you want to, I guess. It'll probably be the pinned post on my Christina Adams author Facebook page and Twitter anyway. Because obviously that's the pre-order to the next book. But my plan is to get the pre-order of Hollywood Heartbreak up on Amazon soon as well. Because I've got it on Apple and Kobo at the minute. But not Amazon. Um, so most of my readers are on Amazon still. So I should probably get that up. But it's because Amazon penalises you for review, Not reviews. Penalises you for pushing back release dates. And mm -hmm. I've made the decision now to prioritise the Afterlife Calls series over Hollywood Gossip. But that doesn't mean I can't still have the next book on pre-order you know and show people it is coming but it's obviously going to be a little bit further along than i had initially planned because i'd planned to finish the series this year and from a business perspective actually afterlife calls is already doing a little bit better than that series mm. so it makes more sense to focus on that and i'll be brutally honest i'm just really enjoying writing these books so i'd rather focus prioritize that, that. yeah, yeah give the people what they want <laughs> build on that momentum for me and also for the algorithms and for readers as well because in theory if i continue my current momentum i can have the first three books out in afterlife calls this year so it would be um arc readers in september and probably release end of september and then i don't maybe october for necromancer secret to arcs not arcs to betas and then maybe release end of november i don't know yet we'll see don't again, hold me to it anyone again readers at <laughs> home readers and writers at home do not hold christina to the schedule it probably won't happen <laughs> it might uh, i'm trying to get much more organized and plan much more ahead but until i know how this current daily writing thing affects me and my schedule and stuff it's going to be hard to really predict everything but certainly course, i want to get the first four books written and published as quickly as possible because that's the first arc in the series and also they do follow directly on from one another and it is useful for me as a writer to write them all quite close together when it's all quite fresh because it's a new concept i only came up with these characters like last june june 2020 whereas the what happens in hollywood universe i've been writing about since 2008 so it's well i may forget some things you know a lot of it is still ingrained in my mind you know absolutely if you wanted to you could absolutely release the next two this year i just uh, i don't want you to feel pressured i don't want our writers and listeners at home to be disappointed yeah that's fair but no <laughs> i think we can do it i think we can do it things happen that's the thing isn't it and obviously your writing mm. takes a priority but it can't always things happen things happen yeah but when it's keeping the lights on you kind of do have to prioritize it <laughs> Shall we uh, dive right in, my dear? <laughs> yes, let's go hang out with Sasha and we shall see you on the other side. Today I am joined by the amazing and multi-talented Sasha Black. Sasha, welcome to The Writer's Mindset. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know I love chatting to you, so this is a real <laughs> honour to be here. I'm excited. We've got lots to cover. So before we get started, just for anyone who hasn't heard of you before, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yep. So I am an author of both nonfiction for writers, the writing craft, looking at characters, prose, all of that good stuff. 
And then I am also an author of fantasy, currently got a, a young adult fantasy, and I'm working on some adult fantasies as well. And I am the host of the Next Level Authors uh, podcast jointly with Dan uh, Wilcox. And I have my own show, the Rebel Author Podcast, uh, which is also another weekly show. And where else can I tell you? I'm a speaker, a general rebel. I swear a lot. <laughs> Am I allowed to swear here or should I be good? I don't know. Yeah, you're allowed to swear. Okay, cool. Yeah, Yeah. a general (laughs) deviant, I would say. Uh, Yeah, so that's me. Awesome. So your latest book is on writing side characters. And I just finished it last night and I absolutely loved it, although I'm a bit sleep deprived because I stayed up late because I was enjoying it so much. (laughs) (laughs) So um, why do side characters matter when we're putting together a book because obviously a lot of people focus on the protagonist and the antagonist Mm -hmm. and maybe any um maybe the love interest but what about those other side characters in a story yeah so i can't deny you know your protagonist and your antagonist are the most important characters however your side characters still matter like it's very unusual to get a story where there are no other characters um you do occasionally get like your lone wolf you know i'm trying to think of that will smith film uh where he was the dog i am legend that's the one yeah uh you know but actually these these stories are quite few and far between and the reason is is that having more characters enables you to drive your plot forward. So if you think of story as like a body, your the soul of your story is your theme, what your what your story is really about. The heart of your story is your protagonist. And then your side characters are your arteries. So they're feeding your protagonist. They feed the heart of your story. And without arteries, your heart's a bit buggered anyway. Um, so, you know, you do need them. You, these side characters, they create different viewpoints they create points of conflict and obstacles they challenge your protagonist they support your protagonist they are there to help your your protagonist reflect and um think in your story so yeah i suppose the way i look at it is that if your book was um a mass equation um and your protagonist was like the solution to that maths question. Your antagonist would be a completely incorrect answer to that maths equation. Then your side characters are all the workings out along the way um, and all the things that you discard or maybe you take with you into your formulas to work out that that math sign. So yeah, they are really important. I love that maths equation. That's such a nice way of looking at it. And something that really stood out to me in the book, which, believe it or not, despite four years of studying creative writing at university, we never talked about theme. Oh, never. what? Wow. I know. Don't even. And I should mention when I did my MA, I focused on poetry and script. Okay. But certainly when I focused on fiction, there was no mention of theme. And it's something that kind of evolved naturally in my books. But I never, I never thought about how side characters can reflect the theme in different mm-hmm. ways, mm-hmm. like different sides of how important love is. I think is the example you use in the book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so side characters, like essentially, your protagonist should be the uh, embodiment of whatever your theme and key message is. Your um, antagonist is the opposite of that. So, like in the case of Hunger Games, the theme is sacrifice, and that is what Katniss does. She sacrifices herself consistently. Uh, 
President Snow sacrifices others, which is a complete opposite action to what Katniss does. But then the different side characters throughout the book, they all represent it in different ways. So, you know, um, uh, uh, what's her name? The sister Primrose, she... um, she helps Katniss to make that first sacrifice. So she's representing it in that way. Peter gets sick. Prue uh, essentially makes a sacrifice because she she should be trying to kill Katniss and she doesn't, she tries to help her. So that's a different view on sacrifice in a different, and ultimately she ends up sacrificing herself. Really, she ends up dying. Um, And so, yeah, like each different side character can represent a different relationship, be it like a truth relationship with the theme or um, embodying a lie uh, connected to the theme. Like if your theme is love is always enough, then the lie could be that love isn't enough or that, um, you know, you, 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 the lie could be that you should always love yourself instead of loving others or, you know, so on and so forth. So each of your side characters should be connected to the theme in a different way. Um, and that, like that fulfillment of whatever it is they are connected to the theme, however they are connected to the theme, should help propel your protagonist into making a decision on whatever the theme question is. So, they see other people either fulfilling the theme in a good way or a bad way. And that then makes your protagonist make the decision uh, on the theme, the big overarching theme question. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. So when it comes to side characters, do you think different genres require different approaches to creating them and fleshing them out? Or is it one size fits all regardless? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think think the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, I know it's not helpful. So like, I think it depends which way you are looking at side characters. So you have character and then you have characterization. So characterization is everything that's outward facing. It is the tangible things that a reader will see and feel in a story. So for example, if your character is aggressive, then they might be characterized by always scowling or by um, punching things a lot or by being overreacting and overreacting in dialogue. Those are tangible things that your character will do. Characterization, I think, is different depending on genre. You look at young adult genre, a lot of the protagonists are young, bolshy, rebellious females. You look at historical fantasy, not historical fantasy, you look at historical novels, and in particularly in times where, let's say the Victorian era, there was a lot of female suppression. And so you've got women who are uh, much more, what's the word, compliant for example. So you're not going to have that rebellious characterization in your plot. So, and then another example, like in urban fantasy, lots of the characters are characterized by sort of sassy, sarcastic, sweary, guns blazing type actions and activities. So this is all like the outward facing stuff that very much does depend on the genre that you're in, the tropes that you're writing to and what your reader expectations are character is the core of a character and much 
less determined by those individual things that we all have that are unique about us and more determined by like core traits and things that are unchanging. So character is much more closely related to like archetype as well. So, you know, like the mentor or um, the best friend, for example. Now, most stories, regardless of genre, um, will have elements of those archetypes or elements of that type of character. Whether you're in a young adult novel and you have a parent as a mentor, um, or you're in, um, let's say, a fantasy novel that's very adult and somebody's training somebody to be an assassin, that is still a mentor relationship, but it's going to look very different uh, from a young adult novel to something where it could be blood, guts, swearing and sex, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it's yes and no. Uh, it does look different, but at the core, most characters share similar, you know, traits and um, like that structure. But of course, you must always uh, create the characters that your readers want and are expecting per genre, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I um, When I was working on The Ghost Call, I kind of took the same approach at the start to my non-fantasy books in terms of creating the characters and their relationships and then layered their fantasy um, tropes and roles and stuff on top of that because that was just how my brain worked, having a background in writing non-fantasy and then suddenly starting to write it for the first time in about 10 years. And one thing I did realize was that I had to cut one of my side characters because she didn't fulfill a role. She she was there was meant to be three kids in this family that was being haunted. And I was like, but what is this middle child doing? She's not adding conflict. She doesn't represent anything. She's she just doesn't serve anything. And I as much as it pained me because she was one of the few characters at the time who actually had a name. She, she had to be cut because there was just no reason for her to be there. So what would you say is the easiest way to work out if you do need to get the scissors out and cut that side character? I think, <laughs> even though you're not going to like the answer, I don't think there's an easy way to know. Um, because our it, it's very, when you are writing a story, it's so easy to get stuck in the weeds. It's very hard to pull yourself out. In terms of how do you know when you need to cut a side character, um, I suppose the first question is, what type of side character are they? Are they a cameo? So these are the characters who, um, they're flash in the pan. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the Matrix film, I talk about this in the book, but there's a fantastic scene where Morpheus is uh, has just taken neo back to the matrix the first time after he's like been uh, an escaped out of the matrix and they're training and they're in like a new york city and everybody looks identical in their smart suits and briefcases and morpheus is like rabbiting on and then all of a sudden a woman in a red dress and she's like this speck of color in this sea of like busy new york uh, business people and of course uh, uh, neo gets very distracted and so he turns around and the point in the film is like don't get distracted when you're in the matrix because anybody can be an agent but the point with a cameo character is 
that's all you know of that woman. She is a woman in a red dress. And you might remember that she was very pretty and blonde, but that's about it. She doesn't really, I'm not even sure that she says anything in the story, um, in the film, sorry. But yeah, so these are these very brief characters. You can cut these and they won't make a blind bit of difference. Like they are very easy to cut. So you almost don't have to think about cutting them. And in terms of, is it easy? Well, do you need them? Are they doing something? No, get rid of them, you know. Um, usually they're doing a job anyway, so you, they don't tend to filter into your book unless they are doing something. Very similar with minor characters. Minor characters are in your story more often, often doing repetitive jobs like being a barman or being a coach, a, a coach, a shop person, you know, where, where somebody frequents to buy magical potions or whatever um and so these guys again if you are cutting scenes out of your book and your and then you find actually there's only one scene left in this shop where this minor character was well actually do you need to set it there could you go somewhere else so that's like one way to look at it actually if you've ended up cutting four of the five occasions that that character's there well, can you just put a different character who plays a more significant role in instead rather than having to create a minor character just for this like one small role. Your major characters, however, are a lot harder to cut. So your major characters are your characters who generally represent the theme. They play a major role. Um, they are significant in terms of page time. They tend to have uh, character arcs as well. There's usually only a handful of them. Now, the first thing you need to ask yourself is what are they doing in your plot? They should both be uh, having an impact on the story as well as your protagonist, be that in a positive way or a negative way. They could be being an obstacle if they're like part of the antagonist's crew, or they could be like a best friend or a joker or a teacher or whatever. Um, Another question to ask yourself is, do they have their own subplot? If you want them as a major character, then they probably ought to have a subplot. If they don't have a subplot and they're just turning up in scenes um, and so they get lots of page time, but they're not, they don't actually have anything we woven in through your story. Well, get rid of them. They're not actually doing anything. They don't have their own role. You know, they don't have a why for being there, which is something that they, they need to complete themselves. Um, do they connect to the theme? That's another question. You know, not every major character has to connect to the theme, but if they do, they are woven and embedded in your story in a much more significant way, and therefore they are more impactful. So if your side character doesn't obviously connect to the theme, or, you know, regardless of what that looks like, but if they aren't connected to the theme, well, do they really need to be there? Could their role be uh, taken on by a different major character? Um, another question to ask yourself is, are their characters doing the same thing? So do you have two different types of teachers? Well, do you really need that? Could you bury them in one character or could you take the key actions that, that person is doing and add them to two different characters, for example, rather than just having multiple roles? The one exception to that is... Um, in like a group of friends, so like the group of allies, typically you will have a group, uh, especially in stories that are heroines uh, journeys rather than hero journeys, where having that group of people and collectively going together on the journey is much more important. So 
ally in the core archetype term is is more likely to uh, you're going to have lots of them but each one should be doing something different they should have a different relationship to um, the protagonist um, and then the last question I would ask myself is are they pushing or pulling the protagonist in some way so your side characters like I said they need to be having an impact on the protagonist and thereby the story if they are not pushing the protagonist to either do something or pushing them away from something or pushing them to think um, and they are not also pulling them through on the journey or pulling them away from the villain or pulling them away from making a mistake um, you know on and on and on then what are they doing and what impact are they having if they're not doing one of those things they can probably go does that answer the question Oh, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> cool. Don't mind me, I'm losing my voice. Um, so let's talk character deaths because it's on my mind at the moment. In your book, you mention two different kinds of character deaths. So can you explain a little bit more about what they are and how they impact the story and the characters? Yeah. Okay. So the first type of death is like the really obvious, tangible, like definitely fucking dead type of dead. <laughs> um, and then, so that's... That one's where you get to get stabby. I, there's not a lot I can say about that other than people die. Um, <laughs> the other type of death is intangible death. And that like encaptures everything else. So in that you've got emotional death. So that often happens in like a romance. So you've got your love, um, interest and your protagonist. And uh, in order for them to get together, usually the protagonist will have to have some kind of emotional death. They'll have to lose their anxiety about commitment, for example. And that means that that bit of their emotional being dies, essentially, so that they can overcome it. Um, I think, yeah, so and your next type of death is occupational death. So that's really what it says on the tin. Um, although not a side character, a good example is uh, Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street. And he was a banker and uh, he has like an, a downwards arc. And basically he loses his job and basically ends up getting arrested. And so in order for him to complete his character arc, even though it was a negative arc, he has to have an occupational death where his whole career is um so i uh, like uh, the in the truman show as well there's another one there i always forget the name of the guy who was the director in the truman so in the truman show for anyone who hasn't watched it, i'm sure you have because it's years old now um jim carrey is locked in this giant dome and his life is recorded 24 hours a day and there is a director directing this recording because it's a tv show that the rest of the world gets to see and so that guy christoph basically has to let go even though he kind of doesn't but jim carrey forces him to um and yeah so he also experiences an occupational death then there are philosophical or like moralistic value driven type deaths. So when you have held on to a belief for a really long time, but in order to um, complete your character arc, you have to uh, get rid of that belief or, or lose it or break it or bend it. Um, and a good example of that is Regina from Once Upon a Time, the TV show. And she she actually was a villain. Well, 
she was a villain for some of the show anyway spoiler and um she she basically uh has a redemption arc and then she becomes a bit more of like an anti-hero slash hero and essentially she has to give up her beliefs in evil and doing evil and like getting revenge she has to give up those like values that she was holding on to which she does do in order to complete her redemption arc and then she becomes more of a hero and everybody sees her as a hero because she gave up those um like moral and value-driven beliefs. So that's that dies inside her essentially. And then the last type of death is like a personality or like psychological death. So for example, if like a core part of your personality changes, so um, I don't th th I always struggle to, to describe this one, but in um my own book. I'm trying to get over the line now. Uh, one of my characters, Kato, is super bubbly and happy. And he, uh, one of my readers described him as, as like puppies and sunshine, basically. He's also an absolute fucking diva, can I also add. Um, but he is super happy. And in the third book that I am trying to drag over the line, um, he experiences a bit of a personality slash psychological death. He is a side character also, let me just add. And essentially what happens is that bubbliness dies in this book. And the reason it dies is because he basically gets addicted uh, and try in to magic in a form. Uh, and he's trying to help the protagonist get better. And that part of his personality dies the arc brings him back in a way but he is changed forever um and so that is the you can see i'm struggling to uh, describe it because i haven't finished the, well i have finished the book but i haven't got it through the edits anyway so that part of his personality and the happiness kind of dies or it goes away for a while he experiences that psychological death he can't reach that bit of himself anymore and in order to come back to himself he has to like overcome the addiction and then he can get back to like that sort of um more bubbly self but that is an example of like the personality or like psychological death so i think that is all of the deaths but you asked something else as well what was the other question like what's the impact was that the question uh, da, 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 da. I can't even remember my own question now. <laughs> I think you asked but, what was the, like, how does it impact? So, so are you talking yeah, about how they impact um, the story? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay, so one of the things, two, there's two really important things. There's probably more, and I've just forgotten that I've written them. But two really important things that come to mind right now are, if you kill a character, there has to be a reason for killing them. Right. You can't just kill off a character because like blah, because it's not going to feel meaningful. It's not going to have any impact. So the part two of that is then like intric intricately connected. So there has to be a consequence. What is the, if you're going to kill a character? What is the consequence of that? Who is it going to affect? And how is it going to affect them? Because if a character dies that's like a major side character, for example, your protagonist is probably going to feel something about that. And that needs to be shown in your story. What is the emotional consequence of that? What is the plot consequence of that? There has to, has to, has to be a consequence. I don't care what the consequence is. I don't care, you know, you know whether it's a, an emotional one, a plot, an obstacle, you know, now they can't get the magical sword of villain killing death anymore because they're only the person who had it and had the key to get to it has died or whatever it doesn't matter what matters is that someone dies 
or something dies and that either creates a problem or it alleviates a problem or it creates an emotional blockage, an emotional problem, an emotional consequence. Because if you don't do that, it is utterly meaningless and therefore you can just eradicate it from your book. Um, and you should never be putting meaning, meaningless stuff in your story. Definitely not. No, I, when I was reading it last night, you mentioned a concept called fridging, which I just found really funny. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't think it's just a name, but also I can see it in pop culture. So can you just yeah. briefly explain what that is and why it's a stupid thing to do? Yeah. Okay. So, and it's really easy to do as well. Like loads of people do it without even meaning to. So fridging is a concept that com that comes from uh, like graphic novels and comics. So the Green Lantern, can't remember the name of the original comic now, but anyway, the Green Lantern, basically the Green Lantern's partner gets killed by the bad guy and he stuffs her into a fridge. Like that is literally what happens, which is why the term fridging came from it. The point is the only reason that the bad guy killed the partner was for effect, like basically to make the Green Lantern hate the villain, Major Force or whatever his name was, even more, which is pointless. Like there are a thousand, also it's demeaning and like there are a thousand other ways to motivate a character other than just killing off a woman or killing off a marginalized character or, you know, killing off whatever a gay character a black character a, a you know whoever just to further a male character arc now I say male like it doesn't ever happen the other way round um, and an example of when it happened the other way round was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I hate that I'm about to slag off Buffy the Vampire Slayer because it was definitely like one of my faves as a teenager um, but Willow um, was a lesbian and um, her girlfriend Tara was shot in like towards the end of one of the series and she dies and that was it and basically I don't even think you ever find out who did it or I can't remember who did it anyway. Um, and and literally the only reason she's shot is to make Willow jump off the edge into like dark witchdom. Um, there is, it's pointless. It's fucking pointless. There is no reason behind it. There's no meaning behind it. It doesn't like all it does is push her further on her plot line. So Basically, there are a thousand other reasons that you can kill a character um, and there are ways to kill characters and let it become motivation. Like, um, what's her name in the Marvel movies? The, sh the lady with red shadow. Um, what's her name? The one with red hair who, who dives off the thing for the soul stone. Anyway, she, Black Widow, that's it. Uh, Black Shadow. <laughs> Black Widow. Oh, I was close. I was close. So she she dies. But actually, it's a very meaningful death. She died for a purpose. She was trying to get the soul stone. That is her reason for sacrificing herself. Automatically, it's not fridging because she has a reason for dying. She purposefully, intentionally chose to sacrifice herself. Um, and yet it still serves as motivation for the others to... Um, you know, collect all the other stones and defeat uh, Blueface, whatever his name is, can't remember his name right now. Um, Thanos, that's it. <laughs> God, I should be able to remember all these characters, but, you know, thousand things. I don't know brain. how I do. I don't know how I'm I do. I think impressed. it's because my boyfriend's obsessed, so he's always talking about them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he's yeah, in love with Thanos, which is slightly concerning. 
Well, yeah, he has got one of these masterful uh, villain monologues where you do agree with his crazy for just a little minute. Uh, so he is a fantastic villain. Um, he is, but yeah. yeah, and so like that is an example of how you can use a character death as motivation for the other characters without fridging a character. I think someone like Black Widow as well, even before she had her own film, which one day we'll get to see, <laughs> you felt her growth and her arc, so mm. she didn't just feel like a plot in the story to move it along for other mm. people, whereas someone who is stuffed in a fridge is basically just then reduced to a plot device or a mm -hmm. prop rather exactly. than a fully-fledged human being. Exactly. And, the, and the, the quickest way to counteract that is to make sure your side characters both have a reason for being uh, with the protagonist in whatever way and a reason for existing that is solely for them. So, for example, what is their own agenda? Have they got an award they're trying to achieve? Are they trying to enter the Olympics? Are they, you know, whatever it is. And if you can make that connect to the theme as well, even better because you're just creating this delicious web of connectivity in your book. But um so talking about tangible deaths now, the the meaty stuff. Well it's all kind of meaty really, but how do we tell if we need to actually literally get stabby stabby and kill off a character? How do we make that decision? Well, I think you have to decide why you're doing it. So do you need, you know, as in the case of uh, the Avengers, do you need to motivate your characters? Like, is there is there something um, that you haven't quite driven up that motivation? Maybe you need a action or a plot point to push your character your protagonist into the uh, all is lost moment or the dark night of the soul you know if they lose their best friend or they lose their mentor like Gandalf when Gandalf dies for example everyone's like oh fuck we're all screwed you know that pushes them into like a mini dark night of the soul or whatever it's called um you know so that is a good reason for doing it um another another way of deciding that you need to kill off your character is is it realistic so like in the game of thrones for example fucking everyone dies and the reason <laughs> that everyone dies is because that every there's war and battle constantly so if you were writing a book where there are tons of wars or maybe it's a a, a war aircraft raf book or maybe it's a uh, epic fantasy with a big sword and sorcery battle well some people are going to have to die, aren't they? So, you know, in that case, it's really realistic. Maybe um, it's connected to the theme. Have you got a theme about death? So in my book, The Scent of Death, um, whoa, I'm not going to give you a spoiler, but um, <laughs> it's called The Scent of Death. Some people are going to have to die, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So, and, and that's connected to the theme. So there is a death that's super meaningful that happens um, in the story. Um, and it is basically the embodiment of the theme. And so it makes total sense. Um, the Fault in Our Stars is another example of that. Oh, I've got really an itchy nose, sorry. The Fault in Our Stars, uh, Augustus and, can't remember the other, Hazel, that's it. Um, you know, you know, going into that book, 
it's gonna make you cry. Like, it is literally about kids with cancer, okay? Someone's gonna die and it's gonna hurt and you're gonna cry. So, uh, yeah, like, when it's connected to the theme, you've gotta do it, whether it hurts you or not, you have to decide. Like, if your theme is about death or about loss or about grief, like, you're gonna have to put some of that in there. You're gonna have to put some loss in or some grief or death or whatever. Um, What else? So, like talking about the Avengers, uh, Tony Stark had to die. Like, even though for some people it was a shock, he actually had to die. It was the perfect character arc completion for him. He yeah. starts out super selfish, super self-absorbed. Um, and then over the course of the films, you see him slowly, uh, a bit like Thor, you know, he he becomes more and more about the people. He becomes more and more about helping others, saving others, the good of the people. And so the polar opposite state to that self-absorbed, self selfish state is self-sacrifice. That is the direct opposite. And so in a way, we could have seen that death coming because it is the perfect character arc completion. Rufio is another one in Hook, uh, showing my age, but in Hook, the movie, <laughs> Rufio hates Peter in the beginning, or it appears like he hates Peter in the beginning, but actually really he's harboring like this deep seated, like adoration of um, Peter Pan. And in the end, it's the perfect character arc for him as well, because he goes from this looking like he thinks Peter's a bastard to sacrificing himself to save Peter. Um, what else? You know, like the Black uh, Widow example we talked about, that helps to advance the plot. Like they couldn't have got that soul stone unless someone made a sacrifice. Regardless of the fact it was the Black Widow, that had to happen in order to advance the plot. So that's like another good example uh, for why you should choose to kill a character. Yeah, going back to the Tony Stark example, I don't know how true this was, but apparently in one version of it, he didn't die, die. He came back and and Ugh. Robert Downey Jr. fought for his character to die, die, because it was the perfect way to end his character's arc. Yeah, I think so too. I think if he hadn't died, it wouldn't have been as good. I think it would have felt like a cop-out because he's not then, the arc isn't the same, is it? It's like, oh, you're dead, but you're not dead. So yeah, it's it meaningless. Like exactly. It would have looked like a money grab because they could have made more movies and that would be the only reason they'd be keeping him alive. But yeah. this way, even though it was like gut-wrenching because everybody loved Tony Stark, it was gut-wrenching because it had to happen and because it made it meaningful. Yeah, and also it showed the brutality of the fact they were in a war and yes, okay, there was the snap and some people came back from the snap. But in any war, there are still sacrifices and losing those main characters like Black Widow and like Tony Stark, it mm -hmm. makes it much more real and also paves the way for the next generation to take over. Exactly. Which yeah, keeps things exactly. fresh as well. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I could talk about Avengers all day, which is pretty much all my <laughs> boyfriend and I talk about. We're actually going to get some WandaVision posters or we're hoping to. And I'm going to be all the my room. So, cool. so yeah. I know. <laughs> It's just a nerd fest in this house. He's already got Star Wars posters. He bought the Mandalorian. Um, we're going to get WandaVision. We've got a couple of dog pictures, which obviously have nothing to do with pop culture. And then yeah, it's just going to be a nerd fest. Anyway. I love it. <laughs> um, so we've talked about side characters and your book. If anyone does want to check out your book, do you just want to give them some more details about it before we go on to the next side of things? 
Yeah, so it's called Eight Steps to Side Characters, How to Craft Supporting Roles with Intention, Purpose and Power. And I am wide. So it is. it should be on every store um, digitally. Uh, you can also order the paperback. If you um, use libraries, you should be able to order a copy through your library. Um, the audio book. So I've just finished recording my first uh audiobook which is uh, my first book 13 steps to evil i'm going to record anatomy of prose next so side characters will be after that so the audiobook is coming but i suspect it will be closer to the end of this year before it comes out so if you are audio only then um there's just a little bit of a wait on that one but it's coming soon exciting i've got to say coming. like i i really enjoyed reading it i really did like, oh, I, I learned like... so much and also at one point I was reading it and I read it in your voice <laughs> I could hear I you in my head it was like this is so weird I do get told that that people are like oh I literally had your voice in my head I'm like that's hilarious I love it but also seriously um I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because um I've been very nervous like I know uh everybody gets nervous about book releases but for some reason this one has just I've really struggled psychologically to like push this one out because I don't know I just get worried I don't we all like it yeah. aren't we? I, I read the author's note and I remember you saying something about how easy the first couple were and then this one was just so hard and kept like coming yeah. up with new things to add to it and what was was it a giving birth analogy that you used yeah I think so yeah like uh but, but yeah basically this is a book that like wouldn't die um it, it and this is what really surprises me because I really thought like the hero book would be the biggest because it's your protagonist or like maybe the villain's book but no the fucking side character's book was like it went from 40k predicted to over 80,000 words at its peak I cut it back down to about 70 two or three but yeah like it it just sort of came out kicking and screaming and like wouldn't let go and kept having tantrums and just like it was a bit of a bitch she bites she bites this book <laughs> we all have those books don't we we all have them i have <laughs> right. a feeling the third book in my afterlife course series is gonna be that way yeah feeling. Mm -hmm. anyway so we talked a little bit then about how writing that book about like pulling teeth but moving on to kind of mindset stuff you've got a young child and you do all this stuff for the alliance of independent authors and you do two podcasts and you write your books like how do you juggle all of these things without going completely insane I maybe you are insane, insane i don't know <laughs> yeah I, I went insane a little while ago not gonna lie um there is no good answer to this and the honest answer which nobody's gonna like is that um i just try to live in the moment of that moment because if I don't what happens is I feel like I'm failing everyone and everything and I know that's not a very positive thing to say but it is a very true thing to say um I think any person who has responsibilities be they a dog or they're a guardian or they foster kids or they have a job or you know you have elderly parents to look after or whatever that responsibility may be the minute you have a second thing that you have to do you are always going to feel like you're being pulled in multiple directions and when I'm writing I feel like I'm failing my kid when I'm with my kid I feel like I'm failing my business you know so I don't think that like mindset wise there is a panacea 
all you can do is try to give your best to whatever it is that you are doing in the time block at that time. Um, and know that ultimately, if you have to choose, choose to spend more time with the people than the things or the work. Because, you know, kids grow fast. Like if we're talking about kids specifically, I can't believe, he, you know, he's seven and a half already. Like the time is flying and I can already see that he is less reliant on me. And, you know, that hurts because I, you know, he's my baby. He'll always be my baby. But also, you know, I am very, very fucking hungry and I want this career and I want this business. And I'm constantly trying to juggle that burning desire to work harder, work longer with that fear of him growing up and leaving one day and me not having spent enough time with him. So I don't I don't think there is a good answer. What I try to do in terms of that juggle is to book things in my diary. So I book activities for us to do where we can make memories. I book um I book like play dates. I book um, you know, I try and have a day with him. I had a day with him on Sunday. It was just me and him. And you know, we didn't do a lot. You know, we played a bit of Switch, we played some board games, and but actually they're memories. Um, and then I try to also be strict with my time. So we're I've implemented this new thing, and I can talk about this more if you want me to talk about some tips, but um I now get up at seven, which is really painful because I'm a night owl. Um, and I sit for one hour and I write clean new words, like regardless of what I'm editing or what other projects I, I have on five days a week, I spend one hour writing new words. And it is hard for him to recognize that he cannot come in my office. And he's still, you know, and I've been doing it for two or three weeks now. And even still this morning, he came in twice. And I and I just say to him, look, this is writing time. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll come back at eight good you do that you know so you just I have to try and guard the time that I've got and then guard the time I have with him yeah yeah both sets of time are precious and there's no point trying to do both at the same time I remember talking to someone who has a couple of kids about it and she said that a lot of the people she's spoken to who do have kids put their kids first at the detriment of themselves so they will always sacrifice their writing their mental health their time their energy and then they've got nothing left for their writing as if like they're afraid to ask someone whether that's a partner or a relative or a friend to babysit for half an hour so that they've got that time for themselves i yeah i remember listening to a podcast by elizabeth gilbert who wrote uh, big magic and she also wrote the very famous eat pray love and she i think it was one of the episodes where she was talking to someone else who was a mum and basically Either she said it or this person said it. I think it was this person because obviously this person was a mum and she's not. But um, what the woman said is, if you want me to love you to the best of my ability, you have to let me love myself to my best ability. And that means I have to write. You have to give me, you have to allow me to go and write. And then once I've done that, I can love you better. I can, I can be a better parent. I can be a better mum. And I definitely feel like that. And getting that one hour of new words first thing in the morning, even though I fucking hate mornings, means that when I then go and sort breakfast or make him put socks on or make him clean his teeth and I'm, I can be a hundred percent present there for him. Um, and I'm not worrying about the computer and I feel like I've achieved something and I feel like I'm making progress towards my goals and that's my time in the morning. Um, so yeah, I completely, completely get 
that. Yeah, I think it's in Lifelong Writing Habit, Chris Fox recommends getting up and just writing first thing in the morning before you've done anything else. And mm. I have to admit, I'm terrible for that. I hate mornings. I have really lazy mornings, usually where I'll eat breakfast and have a Westie hug and watch telly for a bit. And I do need to get my arse into gear a bit more. But I'm starting to exercise. That's my way of getting moving because I hate exercising. So if that's done, I immediately feel better and more able to focus. And I've found like it mm -hmm. helps with my energy levels and it helps with the brain fog that comes with fibromyalgia. So mm -hmm. you've got to find what works for you and carving out that time like it is precious and I think we forget how precious our time and our energy is oh, I couldn't agree more yeah yeah definitely um so oh yeah I remembered what I was going to ask you now I had a question it went out of my head and it's just come back do you feel like when you're doing this writing and building your business do you almost feel like you're also setting an example for your son about what he can achieve for his life one billion percent he is the reason that I am doing what I am doing because um I well I'm trying not to get too deep and meaningful now I my mum was a single parent as a kid and I saw her work her ass off to keep us and it was so inspiring in a way that as a six-year-old I couldn't really explain I couldn't explain what it was that I was seeing or why it was inspiring or why it was having an effect and I don't think you really necessarily know that that's what it's doing but um I I definitely saw how hard my mum worked and I hope that that is what Atlas sees but I also hope that he sees that if you have a dream, it is possible to make that dream come true. And that, you know, life is too short to be in a job that you hate. And when I got pregnant, that was a real short, sharp reminder that I did not want to bring my child into this world uh, because I was miserable in my day job. I didn't want my child to see that. I didn't want my child to think that you have to do a job just because it's going to pay you well or just because that's what society thinks you should do. Um, and so, yeah, like I teach my son now about entrepreneurial things. I talk to him about branding. He's seven. The kid understands branding. Like he's going to be That's a so cool. diamond businessman, right? Like, but this is the thing, like so many of us are taught by society that you go to school, you go to college, people who are clever or privileged get to go to university and then you go and get a corporate job and you have 2.4 children and you have a dog and you have a suburban nightmare house fuck that right Amen. there are so many different jobs out there so many different ways you can fulfill your life and I want my kid to know that and I want him to see that and I want him to believe that it's possible because he's seen that it's possible and so yeah like that was a bit of a long-winded answer but absolutely <laughs> no I love that I think that's super inspiring and I completely agree I can remember a few years ago, I had a conversation with a bunch of my female friends and colleagues, and I said to them, what values were instilled in you growing up? And nearly all of them said, consciously or subconsciously, 
family and relatives said, have you got a boyfriend? Oh, when are you getting married? When are you going to have babies? It was drilled into them that because they were female, that's what they mm -hmm. should attain mm -hmm. for in their life. And it baffles me. I'm really lucky. I'm like you. I came from a single parent family. And my mum and nan taught me that I should put myself and my goals first. And if someone comes along who supports that, that's great. And if they don't, then at least I have got my career to fall back on. And I actually ended up doing things backwards and I found someone supportive first. But I am still, I still have those goals and I'm still working towards them. And some of my biggest supporters are my mum and my boyfriend and my nan when she was alive as well. And that does make mm. a difference. Absolutely. It really does. Feel, like, feel a bit emotional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay okay going back to then the time management stuff yeah what would you say your top time management tips are okay so the first thing is to get comfortable with experimentation I think what one thing that people do is they get into a routine and then they think that that routine is going to work for them forever and I think one of the biggest reality shocks and realizations uh, around that was COVID and everybody's routines got fucked. And even for us who, uh, you know, work at home all day, we then had people in our house, you know, you, you couldn't. So experimentation, sometimes we get blocked or sometimes we have brain fog or sometimes we, you know, these things happen and the methods and systems and processes that we used to use no longer work. And it's really uncomfortable to try new things, but you've got to try the new things, okay? You have to experiment. The second thing that I would say is to understand what your personal strengths are. Are, you know, what has worked for you in the past? Try that because I think a lot of us have this tendency to try and fix something that isn't actually broken. Like if writing at night works for you, write at night. No one's going to tell you off. It's okay if you want to write at night, you know. <laughs> I suppose that's more so for those of us who, you know, or for those people who still have day jobs, perhaps writing at night is the only time you get. Or, you know, if you're a morning person, write in the morning, like just get up and write. Do what, do whatever works for you. I think, um, now there are things called strengths, so like Clifton strengths, which I'm studying quite a lot at the moment. For those that don't know, uh, sometimes they're called Gallup, sometimes they're called like Clifton strengths. Um, but I am studying them hardcore at the moment. And you basically get your top five or your top ten. There's 34 different strengths. Everybody has all of them in a different order. Your strengths are basically like your superpowers. So I am capitalizing on my personal strength. So uh, I'm going to give you a worked example. Um, previously, so my number one strength is competition. Um, I also have achiever, which means I get a, I have a very big capacity to have a lot of things on my plate, like naturally, not everybody naturally has that capacity. Um, and another one of my strengths at number eight, just looking at my little poster with the wall on, is focus, right? So focus essentially um, works very well with one goal, one focus that you then tunnel vision and you charge like a juggernaut towards that goal. So I took all of those strengths and looked at what I was doing and how I was structuring my time. 
And I had a conversation with my dad. And previously, my goal, my sole goal, always, regardless of what projects or books I'm trying to publish, was to earn X amount of pounds. And my dad said something to me that shook my world. And he was like, if you want to earn money, why don't you go and be a banker in London? And I was like, whoa. Like, this was like a revelation to me. Um, he was like, you don't want to be a banker. You don't really, like, yes, you want to earn money, but that's not really your goal. Your goal is to create more, right? So we are creatives. We want more books. We want to publish more things, help more people, create more stories, create more courses, whatever it is that you want to do. You want to produce more. And I, I felt like there was this physical shift in my body as I had came to this realization. What that's done is enabled me to focus my time in a completely different way. So now what I do is I, I use a method of time blocking. And the biggest change for me is um, how I use that time block. So everybody you know knows what time blocks are. You set aside an amount of time and you do work in that time. What I used to do was I'd block two hours and I'd be like, I'm going to write this book. And then I'd get to the end of that two hours and I'd be like, oh, well, I, I need to write um, the book that's going to create me the most money. Or um, so I'm just going to do some extra extra things in that. And so I was very money focused. But what he said is that money follows production. And it's so, so true. You can't earn more money unless you are producing more. So what I do now is I have changed those blocks. And when that block of time is finished, I stop, which is a revelation. Usually I'm like, I've got to get to the end of the chapter. I've got to do this or I've got to do that. Now I use the block of time and I stop, even if it's painful. But it's fine because I know that I have multiple time blocks for different project, uh, projects and different things I'm producing. So even though people who are highly focused usually can only have one goal, because my goal is more products, more books, more production, I am able to open more book tabs or more project tabs. And um, I just do whatever I can do in that time block. So every morning, seven till eight, I write for one hour, new words only. Um, when I get to the end of that hour, I stop, regardless of it. I'm in the middle of a sentence, which is really hard for some people to stop, but I just stop because I know I'm coming back to it the next day. I know I'm going to get more time on that. So it's okay to stop. And then like, I have an audiobook recording slot straight afterwards. Well, um, I only record for that amount of time. If I don't get it finished, I don't get it finished. Uh, but that's okay, because I'm coming back tomorrow to do more production, you know? And then I have an editing block. So I'm going to be editing whatever book in that block. And it has just, having the right goal that is aligned with your values and aligned truly with the thing that you want, and also aligned with your strengths, I think, changes your mindset around how you're using your time. I'm not really doing anything different, but it having the right goal and having that shift internally has changed how I feel about the time. And now I feel like I'm productive in a way that I never was before. So like, I know you guys talk about mindset all the time, but it's so important. <laughs> and so like right and when you when you have these revelations and when you are working towards the goals that are most important and they are the things that your soul yearns for all of a sudden everything else falls away
It does, yeah. It does. And then it's just easier to get stuff done. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, before, you know, the thing that I'm doing, uh, which I'm very fortunate to be in the position to do is I have finally got to the point where I can start outsourcing things, but it took me a very long time to get here. Um, you know, and until you are at that point, you have to have a very, very frank conversation with yourself about what you need to cut out. And it's pot calling the kettle black, but it is true. It is. And making those sacrifices and deciding what to cut out is one of the hardest things to do, I think. Yes, it but is. But it's imperative. It's the main way to get shit done. Exactly. And more than anything, like money follows production. You will not make this a full-time career without a huge backlist. Well, not huge necessarily, but without a backlist of products, courses, audio books, books, whatever, you need more. And that's not to say you have to rapid release anything or any of that bullshit. You just need to work at the pace that you can work at and focus on creating more. Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing. Like I speak to people who still think that one book or one series is going to change their life or their goal is to just publish this one great series. But it doesn't matter how long you've been writing, everything you write will be an improvement on the last thing and will teach you something different. Like The Ghost Call taught me all about world building, because even though I kind of did my own version of Hollywood for the What Happens in Hollywood universe, it's nowhere near the same as coming up with my own ghost lore, you know? Mm -hmm. I've got one of those. The yellow. I've got one with a yellow cover over there. Hollywood gossip. I think I've got. Yay! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's behind me somewhere as well. I, weirdly, yeah. I hate the cover yellow, and I have at least three book covers that are yellow. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I, it is. I, don't, I, I like hate red on a cover. <laughs> I've got red and on my head. <laughs> I know, right? <clears throat> Speaking of books, then, what is one book that changed your life? I'm going to be really cheeky and I'm going to give you two, but I'll give them two quickly. <laughs> okay. um, so the first one is Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham. Um, and I think that was the first book that uh, it was the first science fiction fantasy book that I read that made me stop and go, oh, my God. Um, it really the world building, the. The the idea the the you know, like the milieu, I think they call it like the, the nugget of the world just blew my mind and it was a like I'd read fantasy books for years but that was the book that made me stop and go oh my god I want to do this I want to be able to create these worlds like this author did the second book was a book that made me rage um and I only recently in a podcast interview discovered why I hated the book so much so I uh loved the Divergent series by Ron Veronica Roth right up until the end um mm -hmm. and spoiler warning for anyone who hasn't read the Divergent series Veronica Roth kills off the protagonist which is like the biggest betrayal to her readers ever because she uses a heroine's story and in a heroine's story you're supposed to get a happy ever after or like a, a mostly happy ever after and I was so cross I literally threw the book across the room and started writing very shortly after that and um, like intentionally I was writing before but I, I then was like I have to I can do better than this because she pissed me off so much killing off the protagonist um so yeah like I would say like that book wasn't it's not one of these you know wonderful literary tomes but it 
forced me into action in a way. And so I will forever be grateful to that series because I was so cross about it um, that I had to do so, you know, and you know, when I was that young, I was like, yeah, I can do better than this million selling book. Little did I know. Yeah. But um, yeah, so I would say those two. Yeah, I discovered um, the ending of Divergent reading side characters and I decided not to read it after my friends had told me you're not going to like this book because some of my friends are YA readers and writers and they I usually just listen to their recommendations because yeah. <laughs> they know me so well and they were like, no, don't read it, don't read it. And I mentioned it in the group chat and everyone was just like, nope, 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 that's not what you do, that's not how you write a book, that's how you piss people off. After Is yeah. it four books? Yeah, four thousand pages, four books, something like that, and oh then she God. kills the protagonist. And there's no, there's no build up, there's no setup, there's no warning, no foreshadowing because it was a heroine's journey. If it had been a hero's journey, you'd have expected them to die, just like Tony Stark. Everybody was okay with that ending because you kind of expected it to happen. He was a hero on a hero's journey. Um, yeah, so I just, just schoolboy errors. Read The Heroine's Journey by Gail Carragher if anyone's interested in more on that topic. So where can listeners go to find out more about you and your books and everything you're doing? Okay, so my website is sashablack.co.uk. That's Sasha with a C, so S-A-C-H-A, and then the colour black.co.uk. Um, I'm most active on Instagram, which is at Sasha Black Author. You can find my books anywhere on any store, pretty much. Um, you can also buy digital copies of my books on my website. Um, and the only other place I would probably say, other than your podcatchers, um, would be my Facebook group, which is you can search for Rebel Authors on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great chat. It has been an honour and a pleasure. I love chatting to you. So thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. All right. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, Give us a subscribe and hit that like button. It really helps other writers to find our videos and it lets us know what type of content you want more of. And don't forget, you can support the Writer's Mindset over on Patreon for less than your favourite coffee a month. Join our growing gang of writers to get early access to episodes, bonus content and writing workshops. Visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset to join us today. See you next time. Keep writing.